0: Good morning. We've been dealing, talking about Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Looking at it, we've been talking about the fact that Corinth was a modern Greek city. It was like Chicago, in that it was a vital commercial link between East and West. It attracted a lot of status-conscious yuppies. And in contrast with the poverty of the surrounding countryside, Corinth, was the inhabitants in Corinth were wealthy, and they flaunted it. Corinthians loved status and honor. Uh, the well-to-do donated banquets, temples, and great monuments to enhance their public reputation. There were a lot of temples in Corinth. And the feasts associated with those temples was causing problems. And We come to 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. Paul writes, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off. If we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? Paul continues to deal with issues that the Corinthians wrote to him about, and he moves from celibacy and marriage to food offered to idols. The way it worked is in the many temples that existed in Corinth, the sacrifice of an animal was part of those temple rites. And the way it worked, you killed the animal and through certain rites transferred the animal into the realm of the deity. However that happened, then butchered the animal, inspected the vital organs, and inspecting the vital organs, that was the way they determined whether the gods accepted the animal or not. Cooking and offering the vital organs or other designated parts to God, and then you'd cook the rest of it, to share in the meal which always followed the sacrifice. Um, there was a banquet. And so he's talking, Paul, here about the banquet. Meal following the sacrifice and the participation of some of the Corinthians in that meal, and we'll talk about that. What ended up happening is the leftover meat would be delivered to the butchers' shops for sale. And the positive talk about that in 1 Corinthians 10. That was an issue that they were buying that up, and he's going to deal with that, but here he's dealing with the celebration. Um, it could be that status conscious believers. Um, apparently were wanting to justify being involved in those meals, those banquets. Um, As far as Paul is concerned, Christians, he would not permit them to eat idol offerings known to be as such, And, and apparently what happened is the Corinthians wrote to him some things. As you look at the text, there are some things in quotes, and those were the things that were catchphrases being used by the people, believers in Corinth, who were justifying their actions. Uh, All of us possess knowledge. And if you look in your text, that's in quotes, because it probably is that that's what they wrote. All of us possess knowledge. And what they were saying, we know that idols aren't really anything. And that was true. An idol has no real existence. The Hebrew word for idol is a nothing. It's a nothing. There's only one God. And idols do not really exist. They are images of gods that don't exist. An idol has no real existence, and there is no god but one. Um, So why is this such an issue? There's reasons why individuals wanted to partake and be part of these celebrations. Um, What ended up happening oftentimes, if you were in a business, your business would kind of dedicate itself to one of the gods. And then on an annual basis, you would throw a party, have a celebration to that god, at which time they would appeal to the god to bless their business. And now if you're an employee, uh, you would be expected to come. And if you were a Christian employee, you had a problem. If you followed what, would be and say, I I can't do that, you would be looked down upon, and it would be seen as you're not a company person. It could become even a little bit worse. When Romans were defeated, they were inclined to go after those who offended the gods, and those who did not honor their gods in these festivals sometimes were tagged. Um, With this in mind, Paul answers the question, that's what he ends up saying. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, unquote. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul puts idolatry in perspective, and this is what he believes, and he knows that those who are strong in faith will believe the same thing. There is one God, the Father, From whom are all things, and for whom we exist. God is the Father, and as the Father, God is the origin and goal of all things. All things come from Him, all things return to Him. And Jesus is the only way to the Father. Through Him things exist, and to and through Him we have access to the Father. When you break down idolatry, what's idolatry? We don't deal with it a lot. We'll see, we do, though. There is one form of idolatry we understand. Idolatry is the vice of giving to someone or something the love, devotion, trust, and obedience that belongs to God alone. That's what idolatry is. And when you break it, idolatry is really about security. Remember the Israelites. When they went through the wilderness, Yahweh, the God who accompanied the Israelites led them through the wilderness, but when they arrived at the promised land, the problem that existed when Elijah and Elisha were around, is that well, God was really good in the wilderness, but in the city that's not God's reign, that's not God's realm, and Baal was the one. So what they would do then is, well, it, to cover your bets, you worship God, and he was good in the desert, and you worship Baal, because he was better in the cities. You know, God was a little uncomfortable in the cities. Um, so, that's, they covered their bets, and that's what they dealt with. So, that idolatry is really about um, security, and in that respect, there is a form of idolatry we all understand. Uh, we're in the a very powerful, affluent nation. Paul calls greed idolatry in Ephesians and Colossians. He talks about greed and in two places, which is idolatry. Um, And in that sense, it makes sense. Here's what Proverbs says. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Idolatry is about finding security in And what Paul and the writer of Hebrews would say is that that's the way it is with money. We all need money. It, it, it takes money to live. The The problem with money is that it makes promises. It offers protection and provision, and we feel like if we have enough money, we're protected from everything. That's when it crosses a line. Listen to what Hebrew says. You don't have it in your worship folder, but here's what. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And it doesn't just stop there. It goes on to say, because God has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And the reason why Jesus paired up God and money and said you can't serve both, is that they both make rival claims. Money says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And if you have enough money, you're protected from things. God says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Only one of them can follow through on that promise. That's why he says... um, let your lives be free from the love of money, be content with what you have, because God has said, I will never leave you. So, when we think of idolatry, idolatry is about security, and that's why it says, let your life be free from the love of money, be content with what you have. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Money makes the same claim, but it can't follow through. Only God can follow through. That's why, in dealing with the love of money, what you do, Is you don't focus on money. You don't try not to put your trust in money. What you do is you focus on putting your trust in God. That's what he says I'll never leave you. We've talked about this. To leave is to untie, to take something and loosen it so that it just drifts with the current. God will never cast you adrift. When we feel cast adrift, we need things to protect us. God will never cast you adrift. That's what it means that I will never leave you. Forsake is—we've talked about this. To forsake is to leave somebody behind. The Marines say semper fi, always faithful. A Marine will never leave a comrade on the field of battle. That's what that word means. Never will I forsake you. I will never leave you behind. So here's what God says to you. Let your lives be free from the love of money. Don't look to it as a source of security, ultimately. Be content with what you have, because here's what God says. I will never cast you adrift. Never. I will never cast you adrift. I will never untie you so you're floating on the stream of fate and I will never leave you behind. I will never leave you abandoned on the field in some type of desperate circumstance. If that's true, What can man do to you? And that's the point. That's why you can let your lives be free from the love of money. And when it talks about money then, what it says, if you have money, be generous with it. It's not going to protect you ultimately, but that's a good thing, isn't it? Because Solomon said, "Cast but a glance at riches, and they'll fly off to the sky like an eagle. Put your trust in riches, and they—they <laughs> they go. We all know. We all have." awarenesses and understandings of that. Uh, talks about idolatry here. In the context of Corinth, though, um, an idol is a nothing. The kind they're talking about has no real existence. Diana or Artemis, whatever it is, uh, there's only one God. The problem is there are those who don't realize this. Their consciences are weak. What it means? Their consciences are weak. A conscience is literally something that we tell ourselves. That's what a conscience is. It's knowledge that we share with ourselves or with someone else. The problem is that there are those whose conscience is weak, and this is what it means. They get this voice. Ooh, this is really something. Apollo has power. Diana can protect me. And that's the issue. Um, their consciences are weak. The fact is, Diana doesn't exist. Artemis doesn't exist. Apollo doesn't exist. Zeus doesn't exist. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob exists. And his name is a strong tower. You call the righteous, run to it and find safety. Uh, But they don't know that. And that's what Paul goes on to say. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through formal association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their consciences, being weak, is defiled. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Again, the word conscience means knowledge we share with ourselves or with someone else. For those with knowledge, the banquet may only be a social occasion, but for those with a weak conscience, the actions trigger all memories. And even though nothing's going on, what they're thinking is, maybe they're remembering things that they used to deal with, And their minds are still infused with old conceptions that spring up involuntarily. They just don't have the ability to push away those old thoughts. And that becomes a problem. Because if it's a problem in your mind, it's a problem. And this is what Paul deals with. Paul's not afraid that the weak will be offended, but that they might fall away from their Christian faith. That's his point. That's what Paul's always concerned about individuals falling away from the Christian faith. It's not that the person might be persuaded to eat while thinking all the while that it is wrong. They will think perhaps, ah there's no real big deal and but it will wound their conscience. If you see N C I S, you know, Gibbs always gives Tony this whack across the back of the head. When they talk about wounding their conscience, that's not the image here. It's about a blow from a cudgel. And it's something that their conscience is wounded. It's dealt a blow. Well Paul what he's dealing with and what we can then where do we settle? Mike, you know, we don't deal with food offered to idols. I think what he's getting at is strong versus weak. And what is that when we think of it with respect to faith. Strong faith. It um, says, for in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In every endeavor, you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to put the ball through the hoop? What is what is it that counts? If you watch the NCAA, March much madness. It's basketball simple. What counts? Putting the ball through the hoop. Christianity, what counts? Faith expressing itself through love. Faith expressing itself through love. That's what strong faith looks like. Faith that is leads to serving others in love. And loveless faith comes up short. This is Paul's problem for the Christians in Corinth. Now they might have knowledge and. Idols might not be anything, but their faith is loveless. And in what they do, they are hurting other individuals, and that's the problem. Weak faith says in Hebrews, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. In this context, those were being addressed to Jewish Christians, and um, they became followers of Christ. Perhaps they were even in Jerusalem at Pentecost. They heard the gospel preached in their own language, but what happened, they had to leave and they had to return to their home in the Roman Empire, or some were driven out of Jerusalem. And over the years, now Hebrews, by the time this was written, it's probably 15, 20 years And the problem is that their faith has eroded. Jewish Christians had a difficult time. They were persona non grata in the Roman Empire. If you were a Jewish Christian, you really weren't accepted by Jews. Neither were you accepted by Gentiles. And that was the issue. It was one thing to become a Christian in the beginning, when everybody was selling their land and putting it at the apostles' feet, and it was like a rainbow coalition. But then this is 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, and they can't get good jobs, they can't go to the synagogue, and that's the center of Jewish existence at the time. Um, So what's happening, these individuals, some have headed back to the synagogue, and uh, to, back to social life, they are bailing out. And this is one expression of weak faith. This is what Paul's concerned about in Corinth, and the writer of Hebrews is concerned about in his time. Um, they are leaving, and there are some very difficult passages in Hebrews. I'm going to read them. You don't have them in your worship folder. But I'm going to read them because we apply them in a way that threatens us and it shouldn't. Let me just read them to you. Hebrews 6, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What this is describing are Jews who had entered the church and want to go back out and go back into Judaism, and at the time that's not possible. This is a juncture in salvation history the Old Testament and all that preceded was leading up to Christ. And so these individuals entered into a relationship with Christ, but it was difficult. And so now what they're wanting to do is doing an about-face and going back into the synagogue. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, you can't do that. And he goes on in Hebrews 10, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries when it talks about sinning deliberately, the sin that it's speaking of is the sin of apostasy it's not talking about if you struggle with sin, then you better then you're going to face fire that's not the point it's talking to Jewish Christians who are seeking to go back into Judaism. In Judaism, unintentional sin, you could kill an animal and that you could have that forgiven. Intentional sin, though? There's no forgiveness for intentional sin within Judaism. Which is why I'm really glad there's a new covenant. I really am glad there's a new covenant. Where he says... I will be Helios to your unrighteousnesses and remember your sins no more. And within, yeah, again, within the context of Judaism, you couldn't kill an animal for an intentional sin, and that's what the writer is saying. Now you know Christ is who he is. You can't go back on them. To do that at that point, what a it was disastrous spiritually. There's actually two kinds of weak faith that the writer is dealing with. One of them is about those individuals whose faith has eroded, and they are heading back into the synagogue. And what he says, don't go. But there's another kind of weak faith there. And it's the ones that are staying. And they're they're staying, but they're not going after them. They are maybe looking down on them condescendingly. They're not encouraging them. They are not going after them. And that's a problem. Um, It says, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness of, without which no one will see the Lord. It talks about holiness. And it it gives a sense for what holiness looks like in the context. What does holiness look like? When you think of holiness, a lot of times you think about somebody who leads the way in doing things that are godly things. And that could be an expression of holiness. Here, though, interestingly, holiness is not evidenced up in front of a group. It's not leading the way by doing this or doing that more so and more frequently and more devotedly. Here, holiness is practiced in the back of the group. Here's the image. There are individuals who are falling by the wayside. And the writer of Hebrews is talking to those individuals that are falling away and saying, don't do it, man. But then he's also talking to the ones who are leading the way, who are staying faithful and what he's encouraging them to do, hang back. Because holiness is not evidenced out in front of the the group, but behind. Looking for those who are straying, who are falling behind. When it talks about lift up drooping hands and strengthen weak knees, it's talking about the individuals that are falling behind. They're, they they can't keep going, and what he's trying to encourage them: come alongside them, encourage them, keep them going. It talks about make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. He's talking about do what you can to enable those people who are falling behind to keep to keep up. Don't just be concerned with. What's good for you? And this is exactly what Paul is dealing with in Corinth. It's exactly the same thing. He's trying to tell them, don't just do something because you can do it. Look at the people who are being impacted by it. And don't. And then if you're doing it, and if they're stumbling, then you don't do it. That's, that's his point. Uh, holiness is about lagging behind. It's about assisting those who are bailing out. Um, how does God teach us this. Greg talked about discipline, and discipline is a different word than punishment. We've talked about this before. The focus of punishment is on the past, what you've done wrong in the past. The focus of discipline is on the future, what you will do right. That's when it's properly administered. Discipline thinks about future correct behavior That's the word discipline literally means to be with the child. And so the focus of punishment and discipline are different and the motives are different as well. The motive of punishment is wrath and the motive of discipline is love. Um, It says for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We go through difficult things. Greg talked about that. David talked about it. And we wonder, what did I do wrong? Why are you exposing me to this? But discipline is not just about taking things away. It's about adding things. And the thing that gets added with discipline is a concern and an awareness of those who are hurting. If you've been if you've experienced difficult things, you know what it's like to be confused. You might have said, I wonder why God did this. What God does is He puts us in a place that we can understand those who are falling behind. If you never have any struggles, if you never have any doubts, you would imagine that those people, well, they get what they're coming to, but God puts in us an awareness of what it's like to deal and to struggle. That's what discipline means. And in the text it says it's for the purpose of discipline that you endure. Some of you might be going through difficult things. And you're wondering, I wonder what God's trying to take away from me. It really might not have to do with that at all. It might be that in... Undergoing something difficult, you can't run ahead. You just have to just kind of do one step at a time. I think we all know what that's like. In a difficult circumstance, that's what it's like. You say, why is this happening? It might be, again, in what he writes here, that you'll be better able to deal with the people who are stumbling along behind, whose, whose road is difficult, Holiness is not about us leading the way, and it's it's also about us noticing the ones who are lagging behind. We're going to have a song as we close. Join me in closing prayer. Father, I would ask that you would continue to help us to understand how we can come alongside and and express our faith and love to others. Um, We all have knowledge. We all have uh, uh, at least a modicum of wisdom. And that that would not be um, a way for us to puff ourselves up, but yet um, we would use that as a way for us to use our love and express our faith and love to others to build them up and to encourage them through difficult times. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.